All right, everybody, welcome back to another week's episode of College Football Unmasked. I'm Ty Hayes, and Nick Barlotta is with me today. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different for this week. Because the Big Ten kicked off, and because we have a big-time guest coming on the podcast, uh, another one tomorrow, I thought we'd do a double upload this week because there's so much football to talk about, and with the guests we're having, it just seemed like it couldn't be a better time. How are you doing today, Nick? How's it going, man? I'm doing, I'm doing good. I'm doing better sports-wise, I feel, I don't know. There's a lot happened this weekend in sports as a sports fan that made me, I don't know, happier than I've been in the past, but. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know that I can really say the same. Being a Bama fan, it was a tough (laughs) week with the loss of Jalen Waddell. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about that, but, you know, we're going to be talking about more than just college football this week because we ended the, the conversation last week talking about the UFC fight this weekend. And I think we both said the same thing, right, that we thought Khabib by submission. Mm. And coming out of that fight, did you think that there were any surprises, any lessons learned, or was it more of what we thought? No, I mean, I talked a little bit about it on my podcast yesterday. Um, that'll come out Wednesday. It's about um, – I basically went in deep about how all sports guys uh, don't really know when to retire and they retire either too soon or too late. And I went in deep with that with a couple other athletes and stuff. But yeah, I when it came to Khabib, I, I felt like we saw exactly what we thought. Um, he was going to swarm him. He was going to suffocate him. And I think if anything we learned from Khabib in that fight, he had a little less patience than he usually does, and he wanted to end it sooner because he had a chance to end it in the first two. Um, I think he had a little less patience in that fight. He wanted that fight over as quick as possible. And he exactly what we thought. I mean, he smothered him from start to finish which for a you know stylistically that makes sense to me I don't know that anybody wants to stand in the middle of a ring against Geishi you know Mm -hmm. and try and extend the fight because at that point I think you're kind of just playing his game right like Geishi's so unique to me because Khabib historically has been one of those guys that likes to grind you out throughout a fight right and Geishi is kind of similar just the stand-up version of Khabib right Mm -hmm. where they're both just very violent but very almost uniquely brilliant with their entrances and everything because they seem just so simple Mm -hmm. but I mean I I'm like you now where do you think about his timing on his retirement where did you go with that that's going to be interesting um I think it's right I think it I mean for me I will never and I talked about it yesterday I'll never uh look down on an athlete for retiring when they want to retire. I talked about um, Patrick Willis, Calvin Johnson, Andrew Luck, uh, guys who, you know, if they felt like it was the right time, then it was the right time. It's, it's their, it's their call. Now when it pertains to Khabib, I like it because I think there's too many UFC fighters that hang on too long. Now, uh, of course he has extra years in him. That's, 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 I mean, should be non-debatable. Um, but for him, a guy who's fought with his father for his whole career, um, you could tell he just didn't even want to be there. So he was there because he felt like he needed to for the fans. And, and one of the things that I, I took away from this, from that whole moment and everything, was um, with the whole thing with him and McGregor, it made me feel as if during that moment when they had that huge brawl, leading up to that fight, that he felt very disrespected because he seems like a guy that's very respectful when it comes to the fighting world, when it comes to everything that surrounds it. So 
I, I mean, I'm going back in time here, but I, I just feel like he just felt very disrespected by McGregor and maybe rightfully so for him to react that way. No, I think, look, I think that the, the McGregor-Khabib situation is one of the most fascinating in recent sport histories. I think that the only one you could top, about, top it with, and I don't know if it would classify as recent history, is the malice in the palace, mm. right? Like that right there is just probably the only sports moment of my life that just hits a higher absurdity. Because, mm. I mean, we're talking about Connor throwing a dolly through a bus, Right, we're talking about guys getting jumped in elevators in New York City just for being affiliated with a camp, not to mention the after fight um, debacle that happened. But I've always felt like that's one where both sides were kind of incorrect and correct, right? Like it all kind of started because of the war of war, war of words, um, but it kind of escalated much quicker. I don't know if you remember, but didn't Dylan Danis get jumped in an elevator by Khabib and a bunch of those mm. guys? And that's when Connor flew to New York and threw the dolly through the bus. And so yeah. that, that whole thing was just wild, right? Yeah. Like they, there has to be stuff behind the scenes that like we'll never know about, but that's incredible. Now, what were you surprised about most? Were you surprised at the fact at how easy Khabib made it look? Or I think the thing that surprised me the most is that did, did you hear what DC said after the fight talking about Khabib could have gotten him in an arm bar, but he mm. heard Gaethje talking about how Gaethje wasn't going to tap and he knew Gaethje's parents were there and he didn't want to hurt him. So he sets up the arm bar and then transitions from that into the triangle. If that's I, true. Yeah. I mean, I already, I, I, listen, I, I already feel, and people will disagree, and I, I understand, and they're entitled to disagree. I already feel that he is the pound-for-pound pound best fighter right now, and I am not too sure where he stands all time. I don't want to sit here and say that. I, I, don't, I don't like in any sport sitting here and saying the best of all time because every level of every decade is different, especially in fighting. Um, of course, I think any fighter now would, I mean, not say any, but a good portion of the fighters now could do some work on the guys who were the first couple guys into the UFC because it's a different style. Um, but if that's the case and he was able to basically pick and choose what he wanted to do and end him, that even strengthens the feeling that he is the most dangerous man in UFC and most dangerous, one of the most dangerous fighters of all time because not only this fight, that surprised me how easy it looked because I knew going in what I expected, and this was what I expected. But even though you think something's going to happen and, and you have a full expectation that it's going to happen, it's still super surprising when he does exactly what you think he's going to do. And he's been doing that his whole career. All right, I mean, what is it, 33 and 0, 32 and 0 now? I think professionally in the is 30 and 0. Or no, no, that can't be right. I'll, I'll look it up while we. I thought uh, he was thirty-two and zero going into the fight. Could be professional record. Let's That's see. But no, I I understand where you're coming from, and look, even the debater in me wants to push back on that, but there just isn't a lot of principled reasons as to why not. I think yeah. this knock could be that a lot of UFC fans are recent, right, with the influx of guys like Izzy with. Connor, right? Um, and a lot of the striking draws heavy crowds. 
Whereas Khabib's style might not draw the viewership, but you have to respect just the dominance he puts. That's the only negative I could see to Khabib. And it's not speaking of his ability, it's speaking of viewership draws. And that's an entirely different conversation. So there really is no justified argument for him not to be in the conversation. I, I'll put yeah. it like this at the very least. If there's a Mount Rushmore of UFC, he's got to go into it, right? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, mean, he has to. Yeah. And he has to, because at the very least, he's probably the best ground fighter of all time. At I don't the think there's any. Yeah. any um, and he, DC had a shot at that, but John Jones picking him apart the way he did. Yeah. That's if, if John Jones never existed, DC would be going down as probably just like could be one of the best fighters of all time, because I don't know in that weight class who would have been a real threat for DC outside of Jones. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure somebody else could have made a mark because you, you could because you never know how things work out. But I think Stipe. Oh yeah, Stipe for sure. Stipe for sure. I mean, I would have liked would have been, been a great battle. Yeah, I would have liked to see DC like three, four years ago, five years ago against Stipe. And you know, even though the same effect, Stipe is going to be younger too, but. I still think DC at his best is one of the better fighters we've seen. But I, when it comes to the, you know, the discussion of the pound for pound, it's almost like I think people get way too caught up when they talk about pound for pound best fighters. Like, oh, well, if they went head to head, well, that's not what we're discussing. We're not discussing if Khabib went against Jones, which I think Khabib would do a lot better than we think against Jones, but Jones would win. He's, he's, he's a big, he's a freak. The only thing I worry about is Jones – the same level of brilliance Khabib yeah. brings to the ground game, I think that there are three guys in UFC history, and I think Connor is just on the cusp of it mm -hmm. because I think Connor is a genius as far as just the hands, yep. right? which is why he was able to land more shots on Mayweather. Also, Mayweather was older, but like yeah. the first two rounds of that fight against Mayweather, Connor looked like, okay, well, this looks like he could be a boxer, and then yep. everything yeah. after that was kind yeah. of. You know. Yeah. But to me, guys like John Jones and Izzy have the same level of brilliance in full body striking that Khabib mm -hmm. brings to the ground game. And so those are the only two fighting styles, plus Anderson Silva. I think that it has to be one of those three guys to really just firmly beat a Khabib. And obviously, like you said, we're not talking about the matchup. We're talking about the stylistics. Yes, of course. But I completely agree with you. Khabib is just different enough to give all three of those guys problems if you were to, you know, create a perfect chamber and allow them to fight. Yep. I just think that especially John with his use of elbows is so good at denying specifically takedowns. Mm -hmm. And with, you know, it, it, it feels like there's been a run in UFC of guys who the younger, maybe not younger guys, but guys who are coming into the UFC there's a lot more and more strikers. I feel like everyone's looking for that knockout, that instant, that instant finish, because that is the best way to win a UFC fight these days, is the instant knockout. If you get a clean shot, it's going to be over much more quicker than having to work your opponent down to, you know, to get And it goes viral. And exactly. And that's how they win their fight of the night's bonuses. And that's every other thing about it. Because, you know, we, we can get into a whole different topic one day, but I've talked to um, my buddy before about uh, how – these guys get paid um, minimally coming up and they need those fight of the night bonuses. 
until you start getting on your TV show, your TV shows, your, you know, the big, massive the big, deals. Yeah. yeah I think the big a lot deals. of people would be blown away to realize yeah. how little a lot of these guys who are on their first, you know, four or five fights in their yeah. first contract in the UFC, yeah. it's not much money they're being paid. And in fact, if you looked at it, some of these guys might spend more in medical yeah. after the fight than they made in that fight. And it's not, it's weird to say, but I don't look at it as a problem as the UFC, like as a whole, as a statement, the UFC's not paying their fighters enough. I think the problem is the um, levels of who they pay and what they pay them are a little off. You can give the top, top, top fighter is going to get upwards of $100 million in a fight, and then a bottom guy can't even make rent. So that's where the issue is. Maybe there needs to be a different type of spacing out the money to different guys and making sure that if you have a fighter on the roster, make sure he's actually, like you said, he's able to not have to be in debt because he needs to pay for his medical expenses. Well, that now but we're getting into the conversation of should UFC have a CBA? I mean, yeah. I think five, ten years ago, maybe they were they were small enough that not small enough, but smaller that they could say, you know, they were independent and all that stuff. But I think at this point, I think they are such, it's such a big brand that I don't see a downside. And I mean, I know there's always a downside in players um, unionizing or coming together for, for a guy that runs it. There's always a downside, but if I'm not mistaken, they are owned now by um, this, uh, a group that either owns or part owns WWE the UFC, yeah, they came in with a syndicate that bought out the group. Yeah. And it was super interesting because they were so enamored by the way Dana ran his business. Yep. That he got bought out and retained his old job, which yes. is, hey, that's the ultimate nod to we love yeah. what you're doing. We're going to pay yeah. you and continue to pay you. That's, that's awesome. I mean, and there's a reason – why I say that when I say that they're owned by that group is because I think a group like that, that owns or is part, at least part owners in a bunch of bigger um, business and corporations, they can handle a group of players unionizing or fighters, I should say unionizing more than let's just say before this, when it was Dana White and the uh, Fertitta brothers who maybe couldn't handle it. I don't know. I'm sure they could have, they could have figured it out. They sold this company for as much as they did, but Something, I don't know, something about the guy, people they have in charge feels like they could handle something like that. Yeah, I think it's super interesting, but it also, it's something that I think people aren't even really thinking about how close we are to that, right? Just think of this year alone and the disputes that Dana himself has had with fighters. We're mm -hmm. talking Conor McGregor retires again, and for those not aware, that whole Conor retirement it means nothing. It's literally a way for him to opt out of a contract so that he can get a different contract that he likes because he can just retire and he's out of his contract. So that's where these fighters are though, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of what leverage do they hold? None. If you're good enough, like a Connor, a Masvidal or a John Jones, you can retire and be in a position to renegotiate. But if you are a mid tier guy, good luck trying that strategy because yeah. they're, it's, it's just not going to work. And two things here. The first thing is when it comes to that whole situation with McGregor, I think there is a bigger issue too, is that I don't think Dana wants to run that fight until he can get the door money. 
I, I really feel like, and I think he might, if you look at it like December or January, he might be able to have some fans in Vegas. Um, as you see all over sports, there's fans in some stadiums. So he might get draw money there. And also his pay-per-view money has been pretty good. So, but I do think there's something to him wanting fans and door money at a McGregor fight. I think he, you're 100% right. And I think he didn't care as much. Hard to say that about this past Saturday, Khabib, because Khabib just isn't – as much as he has a huge fan base, it's not like Connor. It's not like having fans in a fight for Connor, no matter who No, Connor is one of the biggest athletes in the world, yeah. regardless, right? Like, he is a international brand yeah. at this now point. He, now, he's scheduled to – fight if it all works out and signs and he, they're, they're talking about him fighting Dustin right Poirier Dustin Poirier yeah, yeah. that's gonna that's be interesting fight. yeah that's gonna be very yeah. interesting um I don't know that I mean they fought before and mm-hmm. Connor didn't have much tr- trouble disposing of him um a lot of time has passed and Dustin has actually had a pretty unique evolution in the UFC where he's really had some things come together but I don't know, man. I think if Connor's striking is still true, he's just so unique in how he does his footwork when he's yep. leading up to striking. He's almost impossible to telegraph. He's just a smart striker, and he knows he he. You can tell he has a background in boxing because he's very. I mean, early days, early days, but he has a very. Um, his approach is very smart. It's very meticulous. It's very where he's hitting you is is all thought out. Um, and and he just he's just he's just he's just an amazing striker. I mean, that's all there is to it. Like he can catch guys coming down with a punch and knock them out cold. And it's 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 pretty amazing to watch him. Yeah, it's incredible. Now, before we started the show, we were talking, and I I said something about your sweater, and I kind of want to chan- transition to that subject right now. Mm-hmm. For those who can't see. Uh, Nick is wearing a really nice Oregon duck sweater, uh, kind of more of the old school logo inspired by the mighty ducks, which is really, really cool. But with the pac 12 coming back up, what are your expectations for Oregon this season? Well, even with the opt outs, my expectations are still pretty high for the team. Um, I think that pac 12 is, is pretty, uh, bad outside of Oregon. I don't, see a lot of threats. I mean, you know, Washington's always a threat, but it seems like a year where with the amount of games we have to play, we can run through the Pac-12. I feel like I just, I feel like we can, but my issue is because the Pac-12 is so weak, is there any end game? Is there any upside to, that's why some of these players left it out and you can't blame them because even if they go, I think they're playing seven games or I think seven games. So if you go seven and oh, it may not matter. Um, because they're not going to put you over Clemson, Bama, Ohio State, Georgia, even Notre Dame, who Notre Dame, I talked about them last week, but they've been all right. But any of those teams, I don't see Oregon getting a chance to jump over them. And even now we're talking the Big Ten teams that are jumping up, a team like uh, Michigan, who I think was really impressive on Saturday. but Very much so. But basically the point is what I was trying to say, is Oregon's at 14, and even a 7-0 boost, they'd get close. But barring a team up there losing two games, I just don't see it ending the way we want it to. But, hey, at the end of the day, if you can have a season that we weren't supposed to play at all and we can go 7-0, and 6-1 with the young recruits we have coming in, I'll, I'll take it. 
And see, that's – I think that there are three things for Oregon this year, that there are three upsides, right? And two of them, I think, could lend itself to a playoff appearance. Both of them have to do – they all kind of coincide with each other, right? And you, you kind of summed it up. You all have a lot of young recruits out there. Um, did, first off, did you see the picture circulating yes. of Justin yes. Flo? Yep, 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 yep. I saw it the other day. He is, he is, he's, he, he looked like, uh, he's the Reuben Foster comp. Yeah. I mean, but the way like his frame was, yeah, Reuben Foster, great comp for him, but the way his frame was, he reminded me of, um, why am I drawing a blank on the name? The guy got drafted by the Reds, uh, the Washington football team. Um, Chase Young, Chase Young, Chase Young, like his way, his body was built. It was just like, Oh my, is that Chase Young? I couldn't tell. And I was like, Oh God. You know what it looked like to me? <laughs> yeah. It looked like that picture of uh, DK Metcalf and AJ Brown standing next to each other. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't know any better, you would have thought DK put on an Oregon uniform. This <laughs> kid is built like a Mack truck now. And he hasn't even gotten a full off season in a college program. And to think you're going to have him and uh, Noah Sewell, who, who, who are two freakish talents. With Kayvon Thibodeau up yep. front, who I, I, I really high. When, when he was coming out of high school, I wanted nothing more than Bama to get him. And I was so surprised when he yep. opted out of SEC play to go to the Pac-12. And, of course, at the time, right, it wasn't super surprising because when you watched him in high school, if you got it, you got it, and he looked like he had it, right? I don't know if you remember the All-American camps. They would release the one-on-ones, and the best tackles in the nation didn't look like they belonged in the same wheelhouse with him. These are guys that are now starting at Power 5 programs with first-round grades that this kid was just disposing of. Um, Sorry. No, no, go ahead. I the thing with Thibodeau, it's every now and then as a as a fan of a team, you you see a player who you're so thankful that they can't come out to their junior year. Every now and then you get that player where you're like, oh, I like these rules. You know what I mean? Like, and that was one of them because I watch him play and I'm like, he can come out right now and probably get drafted first round because of the because and people, I mean, NFL teams love those young edge rushers that have potential. So he. he but at the end of the day, what I was going to say was with Mario, when he, when he took over, he made a point. I remember it was one of the interviews, and I wish I had the clip, but he um, was talking – they were talking about – he had just got hired recently at that point, and they were talking about how the offense in, at, uh, usually dominates at Oregon, and that's been historical. Um, over the last decade or so, they dominate. And he was like, I don't – he's like, yeah, we want to dominate an offense, but we also want to dominate on defense. And – You've seen that through the recruiting process, how he has just brought in fast athletes on the defensive side of the ball over and over again. He's, I mean, better as of recent, obviously, the last three or four years, his recruits, but they have some speed on that defense and some athletic freaks on that defense going forward. And, you know, we didn't even talk about, if I'm not mistaken, and I'm going to check right now uh, because I forget the young man's name. Oregon, at the very last moment last year, pulled a five-star cornerback to finish mm. out their class, nabbing three five-stars. I'm sure. When you pair – I just love the positions that they're at, right? Because I'm a defensive guy. I love defense. Um, 
I'm one of those guys that the what, what was it the Rams Patriots Super Bowl that was super low scoring everybody hated it. I thought it was one of the most beautiful chess matches I'd ever seen. I thought it was incredible, um, and I realized that that's not necessarily good TV. But when you look at where Oregon's recruiting and how they're putting everything together, I think that the Pac-12 is really in trouble, and I think it could be the best thing for the Pac-12. I think this might be the most necessary thing for the conference. Yeah, I think defense should be more prevalent in that conference, but it's kind of hard. Like, If you want to change the dynamic of a conference – which has been historically historically offensive outside of Stanford um, and outside of, I mean, a couple years there, UCLA had a pretty nice defense for a little bit. It was very brief. Um, but a team like Oregon, I feel like, can change the narrative of the conference. If, if these players come in and do what they're supposed to do, which I would be hard for us to say that they're not going to come in and change this defense, it's it, – it, does start changing the conference because then teams have to start playing a different style. So you're not going to be able to just do what you want against this defense. You're going to have to work for it and working for it means you're offensive. You're, you're, you're probably running the ball more. You're probably trying to control the clock a little more. So it does change the narrative of how the conference falls. Yeah. Because everybody has to step up now. And I, I can tell you, just off of the recruiting wins alone, I have y'all running through that conference this year, and I'm not even sure who y'all are going to trot out there at quarterback, right? Like, but I don't know that it matters, right? Because I think that Oregon has a – I'm not going to say I'm the biggest fan of the offense Cristobal mm-hmm. runs. I really wish he would go to a more pro-style approach um, because I think it would lend perfectly to his defense – because he could grind you out in a really nice fashion, right? Like, he has the IQ for it. But I also think that he inherited a system that was already pretty established with players that were established in it, right? Mm. Um, I I hope to see a transition. But even then, the system is so safe that they have so many weapons. And the the name of that corner corner is Dante Manning. He was the number 31 player Mm. in the nation, 6 foot, 185 number four corner in the nation, number one player in his state. So, I mean, That's, what a way to reload, right? Yeah. You're going you're gonna to have athletes all over the ball and then hopefully a guy that's going to take off, you know, he's going to take over the top receiver on the other team. That, that makes it easy. So, that, we, we talked a bit about the Pac-12 hasn't come back yet, right? But I'm like you, right? The one concern I have for Oregon is there's not a good enough win on that schedule. And the reason I have that concern, which is going to bleed us into this next subject is just the generality of college football this past week with the big 10. We already saw an upset, you know, with Penn state going down and one of the greatest finishing plays Mm -hmm. ever in college football. I mean, that'll certainly go down in history, right? Yeah. What was more surprising to you? just how good Milton and Michigan looked or the Hoosiers coming out and punching Penn State in the face? I would say the Michigan because I feel like Michigan's one of those one of those teams that has been kind of in the dumps for a few years and you start worrying about them as their future 
And maybe they just didn't have the right QB that Harbaugh needed because that looked – it looked – exactly how you'd expect Harbaugh wants to run a game. And they dominated from start to finish. I don't think Minnesota is a bad team by any stretch of the imagination. I just think Michigan might be very good. And I think if I'm – yeah, so um, Minnesota completely dropped out of the top 25 now. But um, I think Michigan's very good. But talking what you were saying about Penn State, Indiana, I don't – I, I don't know. I think I think Indiana is a little better than we think too. I think they have they have some skill there, um, but Penn State I expected more out of. I, I like James Franklin a lot. Um, there's a lot of I talked to a lot of uh, guys who were D three D two coaches on a couple of the podcasts I did, and they go to these um, like every year they go to these seminars or conferences, and they always talk about guys that lead those conferences. And he always mentions uh, James Franklin. Fleck, PJ Fleck, and uh, Les Miles. Those are always three that they really like talk, hearing from. So yeah, I thought I thought Penn State uh, would have pulled that out. But so I completely agree with you, right? I, I completely, and I know that sounds asinine, right? I, I know that there are going to be people listening to this saying, "What do you mean? One was nineteen verse twenty-one, and the other was unranked Indiana taking down." number eight Penn State in that thrilling fashion. And I agree with everything you said, and I would have this to add to Penn State. Maybe we overrated Penn State. Because while I do agree Indiana was better than I thought they would be, right? That Penn State team didn't look like it, it had the, the hopes of a playoff berth this year, right? Like they just didn't look like they could do it. And Michigan, on the other hand, is a team that I'm very hard on, right? Particularly because I'm a little hard on Harbaugh. Mm-hmm. Um, did we talk about Harbaugh last week? I don't think so. So I don't think so. Harbaugh, to me, is someone who tries too hard, right? Like, I think that he's a great coach. I don't question the football mind of Harbaugh. But I think that Harbaugh tries so hard to be young and hip, right, and be accepted by the young kids that it comes off as a little cringy. And I'll give you the perfect story, right? So there's a five-star offensive tackle. I believe it was Isaiah Wilson a few years ago. He went to Georgia, right? But Mm -hmm. he was initially committed to Alabama. And the big three were Alabama, Georgia, Michigan. He was committed to Alabama, and when he initially committed to Alabama, he went to go give Nick Saban a hug. Nick Saban shook his hand instead, and he said that was very important to him that Saban didn't hug him. He was like, I didn't have a problem with it, but I come from a very family-oriented environment where we hug a lot. We're a family of huggers. Mm -hmm. So he's like, that meant something to me. And I understand that might seem frivolous, but when you're going somewhere for three years to bust your ass – like, you, you should be comfortable, right? Yeah. That, that makes perfect sense to me. And, you know, that's a strange way to lose a commit. But that, mm-hmm. that's not what's alarming about this. What's alarming is how Michigan lost his commitment. Harbaugh had an in-home visit in which he went to dinner in this kid's house and refused to take off his cleats. He was just stomping around the house in football cleats, and even after he was asked to take them off, he didn't. As soon as he leaves, the kid's mom is like, yeah, you're not going there. 
that's what I mean. Like the rap videos, the playing shirts and skins. I'm just like, you're, you're trying so hard to yeah. be young and hip. And you know what actually bit him? Because Najee Harris, I don't know if you remember, mm-hmm. his recruitment came down to the wire where he would have been a verbal Bama commit, but Michigan came on really strong. And the last week, I don't know if you remember this, but the way we were going to find out where he went to college is which airport he showed up at. <laughs> was he going to fly into Birmingham or was he going to fly into Ann Arbor? That's how yeah. we were going to know. Turns out he got off the plane with Tua. He met Tua in California and they flew together. Um, to Alabama, the rest is history. But he always said as much as he liked Harbaugh, he never felt like there was a time where play ended. Mm-hmm. Najee's a very serious business-oriented person, and I think it shows when you look at how he works out, how he approaches college football. He said that Harbaugh never stopped joking around. He never felt like it was any business. It was just a bunch of rah-rah. Yeah. And I think that's a pretty good indication. Now, yeah. look. I hope I get to eat my crow, right? I do hope I'm wrong because Michigan's is, is a historic program. Yeah, I, I think it's weird though with Harbaugh because him at Stanford, yes, he had the excitement. He had the, um, the he was jumping around. He was who he was, but he, he was different. He was so much, I felt more um, regimented. I don't know if it's, the guy he had behind center for the majority of that. I don't know if it's the way the system works there and it was a different kind of school. I don't know if something changed over time, but you're definitely right. It, it got to a point where, um, like you said, very like, like a kid, like, like, a, like, like, like you gave a five-year-old a set of keys to the house to do whatever he wants, kind of. And it's but, a brilliant five-year-old. Brilliant five-year-old. But it's a five-year-old. It's a five-year-old. And they're, prob- they're probably going to go into the cabin and take all the snacks out. Yeah. At some point. Like, they'll probably do things that are very smart around the house at first. Because, again, very brilliant. They'll probably go on the computer and they'll, and they'll probably learn how to do some stuff. They'll watch a, watch a movie. But then they're going to go into the snack cabinet and just take every snack out and dump it all over the floor. And then you're going to have to clean it up. Yeah. Exactly I, like that. Because, look, as hard as I am on Harbaugh, I completely admit that he is – maybe the hardest college football coach to evaluate job security of, right? And he's the only power five coach that has less than two years on his deal right now. And he hasn't been extended, but I can't think of a reasonable argument to where they shouldn't extend Harbaugh. He's been an incredible winning coach since he's been there, except in the big games. Is that enough to get rid of a guy? No, I don't think so for them, for them specifically, if this was, Alabama, I think we have a difference. We have a, like, let's just say Saban retired and this is Alabama. It's a whole different argument. Michigan had such bad luck finding a coach that can even keep them in moderate contention for a few years. You talk about um, Rich Rodriguez who had his issues and then whoever else was there. It was, it was hard to get, it was hard to come across a guy like Harbaugh. And Brady Hoke, right? Brady Hoke, Brady Hoke yeah. too. Brady Hoke was uh, kind of a disaster. I think he had one good year. I think, I think he had maybe one and a half. I think he yeah. started off one year with the first two games looking real good and then yeah. because they didn't play anybody. And he shot him, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but real quick, I wanted to – because I am a guy that's originally from New Jersey, I need to spend a special, special shout-out to the Rutgers Scarlet Knights. I understand 
Michigan State is they're they're just average. I, I get it, but don't think it's a surprise that their first game back with Shiano. Don't think it's a surprise that they look better. I'm not saying this is a team that's going to be bowl eligible. I'm not saying this is a team that's going to win anything close to any big games this year. That's not my point. My point is I grew up watching the Shiano Rutgers teams and they were a different, much different team than they started turning into. And I saw a little bit of that last week on Saturday, a little bit. Again, I'm not sitting here crowning them, but I'm just happy to see that they have a shot to win some of these games in the ACC. No, look, and I think you make a great point because I think one of the biggest disservices in college football now, right? And it, it's, it's hard because I think a lot of coaches don't get enough time, right? And I don't mean like legitimate time. I think that the media and public opinion writes them off so quickly that it puts the university in a very contentious spot very quickly because with the rise of social media, everybody's opinion is amplified in this echo chamber and then the administration is having to face this echo chamber, right? So you have weird cases to where there are people who expect a program to be turned around instantly, mm-hmm. but it's about the building blocks to a program, right? Like, I think what you, you hit the nail on the head. This win against State is a brick into a building, right? Yes. And it's something that is being built upon, but this is a very important brick. And you, you have to remember when you have guys coming in for visits. Now, under every other coach that was there, um, Kyle Flood, whoever was there, it, they didn't recruit well. And not just recruit well out of state. They let almost every anything higher than a three-star recruit leave the state. And that, that can't, especially in a place like New Jersey, when you're the main team in New Jersey, you should be keeping some of those four stars and Shiano will keep them because, and you say, this is a main block to start something because Shiano. Now the kids that are coming in this week and next week, he could point at this win and say, I, I understand Michigan, you know, Michigan state, Michigan state, but they are like, a, they are still a perennial bowl contender in the uh, big 10. So go look right there. That's a win we have. If you want to come join us, there's more of a reason. So, and it's funny with Shiano because, you know, he, as everyone knows, he leaves Rutgers originally to go to Tampa Bay, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, gets the head coaching job there, and doesn't really work out there. His style is just doesn't work. And then I believe he went to on Belichick's staff for a year, and then Ohio State he went as the D.C. Um, and in that – I don't know if it's in that order, but he went to both of them at some capacity back-to-back. And then he got offered the job at uh, Tennessee. And the Tennessee fans had backlash because Shiano was part of some issue. It was a scandal at Ohio State, maybe? I think um, it was the, um, the Zach Smith stuff, right? Oh, yes. That's exactly what it was. So the Tennessee fans didn't want him. I think the problem was at that point, Tennessee fans just didn't want him in general. And that was their way out. Um, and they basically forced – Tennessee to, to change their mind on Shiano or maybe I think it ended up being came out that that Shiano changed his mind I think there was a weird it was a weird disconnect there then they hired Pruitt and then Shiano went 
I, I don't know where he went after that, but he may have went back to the Patriots at one point. I don't know. But it was, it's been a road for Shiano to get back to Rutgers, and you could just tell that Rutgers is happy he's there, and he's happy he's at Rutgers. Oh, I think it's a match made in heaven. It's a good win to have. Um, you know, because say what you will about Michigan State, they were in the college football playoff, mm-hmm. right? Like, there's only, what is it, six or seven teams that have been able to crack into the college football playoff. Mm-hmm. We're talking about Washington, Michigan State, Clemson, Alabama, Georgia, and OU, and Notre Dame. So, yeah, seven yes. teams. Over since when? Since the playoffs started? Since the playoffs started. That's it. Well, then you have Florida State, Oregon, no? I don't think – I think that was the year before the playoffs, wasn't it? No, we were definitely in the playoff, Oregon, because we played Florida State. That's right. Them. That was the first year. Yeah, yeah, because we beat them um, in the first round. That was the game that uh, Winston was dropping back and he fell. He fell and he fumbled. And then, and then Oregon went on to play Ohio State and got – Yep, because Ohio State decimated Bama. Yep, 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 yep. I think that was 2015. Yeah. Yeah. So those would be the other two teams, Florida State and Oregon, but they were the first, one of the first years of it. So even then, we're talking, there's a hundred and something Division I schools, right? I think it's 126. And we're talking nine, ten of them have made Mm -hmm. a college football appearance, which accepts four teams every year. And you have teams like Bama, Clemson, who have real estate wherever the college football playoff goes, right? Yeah. They, and deservedly so. Um, Ohio State's another one. But I think the question is, do you think after week one that the SEC or the Big Ten is better suited to put in two playoff teams? Um, I'll still say the SEC. Um, it's close. I think Wisconsin, if they get healthy, is a pretty good team. Their defense is always good. And by healthy, I mean if this kid's um, test comes back as a false positive, the quarterback, because right now I don't know if they retested him. He'd have to do three in a row, so we probably won't know till tomorrow. But um, – that's a big thing for them if they lose they lose their oh, quarterback. He was the backup. Yeah, because they already had lost um, – what's that kid's name? Um, Jack Cohn. Yeah. Jack Cohn had foot surgery, ankle surgery, right before the season started. So they already lost him. Now they're on this guy, and he looks pretty good. Looked great. Um, so Wisconsin's a dangerous team, but my back in the did point you, – Did you hear that the backup to him also tested positive? Oh, Jesus. They're on their fourth-string quarterback right now. They're going to have to have students come in and try out. I don't know what they're going to do. Uh, right? This, this poses a whole different conversation that I do want to have here in a little bit. Uh, but, I mean, when it comes to Wisconsin, I mean, this is obviously you need a quarterback. But the way their offense works, they can probably run the ball 60 times and may get away with it for a few games. But that's really not the point. And they back play to, Nebraska. Right. Yeah. You could probably put a center back there and hand the ball off and they'll win that game. Um, just reserve point, offensive line. Original, yeah. yeah just, just, just run it down their throat all game and let your defense do what they do. Yep. So the other point that it, it's interesting is how do you evaluate some of these teams, you know, in this COVID era, right? Because knock on wood, 
Wisconsin, you know, all these kids come back perfectly healthy, right? And we're not faced with something like this again. Mm-hmm. But I think the question has to be asked is this, this quarterback they had, he, he walks in week one and he has one incompletion, almost 300 yards, right? And was just impeccable in his timing, placement, decision-making, everything. Mm-hmm. So if Wisconsin loses against Nebraska, what do we, what do we do? Right? Because if they have their quarterbacks, they win that game but they don't because of COVID. Now I understand that's just an unfortunate part of this reality we're in, but it's also an interesting thing for the playoff committee to weigh, because what if we get to the point where the only undefeateds in the nation are Ohio state and Clemson. Mm -hmm. Everybody else has a loss. How do you weigh a loss when part of your team is out due to COVID versus there's so many factors this year that just make it so interesting. What do you think? I think it's – I think in the previous years, the uh, College Football Playoff Committee hasn't done enough with looking into – looking into game by game, looking into strength to wins as much. I feel like they use the eye test more than, more than, they, sh- more than they should be using the stats and information that they're given. So maybe a season like this where you have guys missing COVID and all this stuff, maybe it forces them to do that. And maybe it's actually a good thing that they're taking out of it is they're using numbers to back up putting a team in rather than just the eye test. Maybe. I think that's a brilliant thing. Yeah. And I, and I, I think the only problem is I don't think Wisconsin has built their name up this year enough that they can withstand a loss to Nebraska, but if let's just say, let's hypothetically say this was Ohio State and they lost Fields and their backup and then lost to Nebraska, I think they can withstand it because of what they've built their name on. Um, I will say, though, looking at uh, the top 25, how it sits, if Notre Dame finds a way in a few weeks to knock off Clemson, boy, does that – let's just say Notre Dame knocks off Clemson and then Bama loses to Georgia. Both real. Very real possibilities. And and let's say Ohio State, I don't see them losing one, but maybe they lose to Michigan. Maybe they find a way to to drop one somewhere. It it, it throws a real monkey wrench in this playoff. I mean, if they all lose one game, then I guess you're, you're just sitting at status quo, but then you have Notre Dame who would be undefeated. Then who are you kicking out? Are you kicking out Ohio State? Are you kicking out Georgia? You're not going to kick out Bama and Clemson. So I almost – I don't want to see Bama lose because I, I like Bama, um, but part of, me wants to see, part of me wants to see Clemson lose. I, I only said that because I'm on the podcast with you. But that's fair. Me, that's <laughs> smart. Smart. <laughs> uh, but part of me wants to see Clemson lose just to see the chaos that would ensue from that loss. I as I like much chaos. as I would like it, right? I just don't see Clemson taking a loss, right? Because when you just look at the weapons they have at their disposal, even if Lawrence, you know, isn't having a good game and that doesn't seem to happen, right? Mm -hmm. Lawrence, when he's off, is still a top three quarterback in the nation when he's not playing up to his standard. That's scary, right? That's that's a really scary thing. And that's why I think he's one of the safest number one overall picks we've seen in a long time. Um. 
But then we talk about Etienne. And then you got to stop him. Yeah. And that defense is so well coached. Now, you know, you brought up a team, and I wanted to get into this, right? Because I have, I have a few more topics before we close. First, how do you think the Jalen Waddle in- injury impacts Bama's season going forward? I think it impacts them significantly. I don't know how much it impacts the games against the SEC. I think they can withstand those games because the SEC, to me, I mean, like we said, the Georgia game. Let's keep that out for a second because I'm not talking about the Georgia game. I, I mean, they beat Georgia, right? What am I talking about? 21. The SEC championship. You'd play it. But you would play the SEC championship. That was, that was, if, that if was my point that out, I lost. Yeah, they got to beat Florida yeah, still. That was the point that I lost in my head. But um, <laughs> Florida is the team that would, you know, be there. But I think the Waddle injury, it hurts them in a playoff situation because there's teams that can get in that playoff that could be a little more physical. And I think missing your top one of your top threats on the outside um, makes you a little more one-dimensional. I'm not saying one-dimensional. Not what I'm saying because I know Bama has the ability to still spread the ball out. But it starts leaning you into a one-dimensional role. And if you get a team like even a Notre Dame, I, I know Notre Dame people are down on them, but I think they're a very physical team with a physical front. So if they can make you run the ball somehow, some way, it makes that game dirty. And I feel like Bama can't come out of a dirty game if they don't have Waddle. I, I, that's just how I feel. I think I think Bama still is, in my opinion, even without Waddle, is still a top two team in the nation. Um, I think they've they've proven enough to do that. But just the the you know the mere fact that you can make yourself a little more one dimensional scares me a little bit. So. I agree in some areas and disagree in others, right? Mm-hmm. I think as far as the physicality aspect goes, I think that Bama is still next to impossible to stop this year up front because they have the best offensive line in football. Mm-hmm. I mean, we got to realize that Georgia was a team that was allowing 129 receiving yards throughout a game. Mac Jones threw 417 yards on them. Mm-hmm. They were a team that was allowing like 1.8 yards per carry. Najee Harris ran for 5.1 on him for 150 yards. So this Bama team is very unique. Now, that is, and I will admit this, that is the bias in me talking, right? Mm -hmm. And here's the bias in me going to continue to talk. Now, I say this because they're real points, right? Everything I'm about to say is factually true. It's a real point, but it is a coping mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. It is something I am telling myself to fall asleep at night. And here it is. One, you never want to see anybody get hurt, but Bama has John Mechie the third, young man mm-hmm. out of Canada that is absolutely exploding onto the scene right now. He's actually the number one receiver in the nation in deep balls. He's averaging 29.4 yards per catch right now. Um, he went for 154 versus Tennessee. Um, Hyper explosive young man. They still have Devonte Smith, who I believe is probably the best receiver in the nation right now. Here's the negatives, right? As much as it's good that they have Mechie because Mechie's a legit downfield threat, and that's what Waddle was, I don't think there's a college football player in the nation that you can ask to replace just what what Jalen Waddle gives Mm. you on offense. I don't think there's any replacing that. I don't think if Nick got to go to every college in the nation and pick any receiver, they could get first-round receivers, no doubt. Yeah. None of them are Jalen Waddle. He's a unicorn. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 
there's there's no one that you gonna replace his exact skill set. You know, you you of course can find guys that can that can perform for you, but that doesn't mean you're gonna take what what Waddle did and replace it. And I think that can be said a lot for a lot of the Bama receivers the last few years, whether it was Rugs, whether it was uh, Judy, or now even um, Smith. It, it they're they're so different in the way they they all have different skill sets, but they're all equally important. And uh, like you said, I just don't think there's anything any way to replace someone like Waddle. Yeah, and so I, I tell myself before I go to sleep, you know, we have Slade Bolden, who's a really good slot receiver, and John Mechie will step up, but it's not Waddle, right? And we become unstoppable with Najee Harris, Dante Smith, Jalen Waddle, and John Mechie on the field. There's not a defense in the nation that can contain all of that. Yeah. But when you take out Waddle, it still becomes next to impossible to contain. Yeah. Like that's still an exuberance of weapons. But maybe pound for pound, the best player in college football. Kids 5'10", 190, is faster than any human they've tracked the first 15 yards, has more jump ball catches than most receivers that are six foot three. I mean, he'll go up and mosh you. He'll mm-hmm. break you. There's nothing he can't do. And that's, that's a terrible hit to have. So do you think for a game against a Georgia, let's say, do you think Bama can pull it out without Jalen Waddle? Yes, because I'll, I'll still give them Georgia because the way they handled them uh, two weeks ago, three, three weeks, two weeks two ago. Two weeks ago, yeah. yeah. Um, they handled them pretty well, and it seemed like that was they just dominated them at all facets. They were ready for them. Now, I know how Georgia is. They would have a, a much better game plan for the second time around. But I still feel like Georgia is a team that they could take out. I mean, I don't I don't really have anything backing up besides the fact of what I saw two weeks ago. Um, but the only teams, like I said, I worry about, you know me, for some reason, I really like Notre Dame's front. I keep talking about that. But um, Ohio State and uh, Clemson are two teams that I feel like, especially Clemson, on defense – can really make Alabama sweat without. If you had Waddle, I think that's a that that opens the field a little more, and they'll, they'll still have a good game plan for you. But now, if they can just find a way to shut down Harris in some way, shape, or form, Clemson, then it changes the game a little bit. So that's what he might worry about. I'm not too worried about Georgia if I'm an Alabama fan. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I always worry a little bit about Georgia. Because they are so much like us, right? Mm. And it's, it's, they're so much like us with simultaneously being nothing like us, right? Mm. Um, they have the same mentality we do. This is, I think, the best way to sum up Georgia. They might be the only team in college football with the same nasty, like, we want to make you quit mentality yep. that Bama plays with. The difference is, is Georgia plays with none of the discipline. And I think that that's, for whatever reason, it's synonymous with everything professional state of Georgia. When you Mm -hmm. think about the Atlanta Falcons and when they lost the Super Bowl, zero discipline. When you think about Georgia blowing the two leads to Bama, zero discipline in play call, zero discipline in approach. And they're they're arguably the most talented team in the nation. So I always Mm -hmm. worry about Georgia. I think one of the things I've also been thinking heavily about 
and we talked about it a little bit last week, is the Heisman going forward. Mm. How do you think that has shifted through our almost midway point of college football? I think it's interesting. I obviously um, feel like Lawrence still leads the charge. I agree. Um, I think Fields was number two and still is number two, in my opinion. The one that – now, of course, the moment I need the name, I'm drawing a blank, so maybe you can help me here. The kid from uh, Cincinnati, the quarterback. Oh. Uh, it's Ritter. Yes. Desmond Ritter. Yeah. He's been very impressive. And I'm not – I don't know if he's quite a Heisman candidate at this point. Um but I test for me, he's been super, super impressive. Absolutely. And then you can also consider any of the Alabama guys, Mac Jones or Harris. Um, I would probably lean towards Harris if you giving me those two. But Mac Jones is up there too. So I'm going to give you some numbers, right? Because it's, it's incredible to me. Let me see if I can't find these. But okay, so here's, here's one first. If we're talking about going deep this season, Mac Jones sits at 79% completion percentage on throws 30-plus yards downfield. That's unreal. Yeah. He has 588 yards and five touchdowns in those situations. All three categories, he finds himself number one in the nation because of them. Now, I had some stuff about his stats mixed with Lawrence's and here it is okay so I'm going to I'm not going to name the quarterbacks right I'm going to give you three sets of stats and I'd like you to try and guess who they all are we'll start first with QB1 QB1 has 77 completions out of 119 attempts for 1,151 yards and nine touchdowns QB2 is 108 for 148, 1,544 yards, 15 touchdowns. QB3 is 90 of 115, 1,518 yards, 12 touchdowns. You have any idea who those three quarterbacks are? Okay, I'm going to say three is Lawrence, two is Mac Jones, and one – I don't even know who my third quarterback would be. Um, the one is one is kind of a one I'm pulling out of nowhere. That's one that's going to be very hard to guess. But he's a good quarterback. That's why I include him because I am high on him. He's younger, not draft eligible. Was I right about Mac Jones at two? You flipped him. Oh, so Trevor Lawrence was two. Jones was three. Trevor Lawrence on the year has 141 or 148 attempts, 108 completions, 1,544 yards, 15 touchdowns. Mac Jones has 115 attempts with 90 completions, 1,518 yards, 12 touchdowns. If you would have told me that Mac Jones would be putting up next to identical numbers mm-hmm. as Trevor Lawrence, I'd have called you crazy. Yeah. And our first quarterback is Sam Howell from UNC, mm-hmm. right? A sophomore putting up great numbers. So unlike you, I think Mac Jones has earned a trip to New York because he's playing, you know, people can say all they want. Oh, well, when you have Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddle, it becomes easier. And sure, but to me, the difference between a Sam Ellinger and a Mac Jones is Mac can put it where only his receiver can get it. Mm. 
Sam Ellinger is accurate enough to put it in the catch vicinity, but not like Mac. But I don't think he's done enough to surpass Trevor Lawrence. Um, One of the things I want to clarify here for myself is I think Jones is worthy of going to New York for the Heisman. Well, probably won't go to New York this year for the Heisman, but we know what we're saying. Yeah. Um, I just think if you're a voter, I think you could go either way with sending Mac Jones or Harris. I think you could send either one and no one would get mad. And you know what? I think that's actually an incredibly intriguing point because if yeah. Najee continues this up, he's climbing the yeah. right on Alabama leaderboards. Like him and Devontae Smith, I think, are going to quietly leave that university holding a lot of the all-time records. Yeah, and my point before about um, the kid Ritter from Cincinnati, do I think he's a Heisman candidate right now? No. Um, like fully. But A, I just wanted to mention his name because I really like him. But B, I think Cincinnati has the chance to run off a few games here, and they could be a real threat. They're a very disciplined team. Um, they've been, you know, surprisingly very good through these first couple games. They took a team last week, number 16. Um, SMU. SMU, and decimated them. I mean decimated them. I think it was 42-13. And SMU was a good football team playing really good so and I like Shane Buchel. Do I yeah. think Shane Buchel is going to be a superstar NFL quarterback? No. No, but I think that there are some guys that are just really good college quarterbacks, and that's Shane I, Buchel. I will say with Buchel, though, I mean, like you said, I don't think he's an NFL guy, but at the same time, he does have traits about him that can translate. His very strong arm, and he, he, he reminds me of a few different quarterbacks in the league um, that I've seen. I, I, I see a little a little bit of Dak Prescott in him at times. Um, and I don't know. There's something about him that I like. But the point being with that was Cincinnati took a very good SMU team and completely decimated them. So I understand, you know, their schedule is what it is, Cincinnati. But they're a team that if they keep – I mean, they're already ranked seven. So I know there's teams that are starting their season behind them that could, like – if Wisconsin ran off a few, they may jump Cincinnati. If um, Michigan, they may jump them. Um, and another team, and I'm sorry to go on a rant here, but another team. No, no, by all means, please. Been super impressed with is um, BYU. BYU has been very impressive. Another team schedules the schedule, but another very impressive team. And you look at these teams that shouldn't be up there, meaning they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. Cincinnati, BYU. If you watch them play, they're very disciplined. And when you're a team like that that doesn't have the talent that other schools might have, if you could just be disciplined and win the turnover battle, win, um, don't, put, don't add extra yards to another team by giving them penalty yards, I just think that is the formula to stay afloat in the NCAA if you're one of those teams. Yeah, I completely agree. So I think for the closing little bit, I kind of wanted to get your view looking forward into the next week. What are you looking forward to this week in college football? Any games catching your eye? Um, I, for starters, I'm just excited that Big Ten is back. That's for starters. Um, I was just super happy that all these schools are coming back. We have Pac-12 next week. So week 10 of the college football season is the Pac-12. Oh, maybe am I right about that? Yeah, week, so. week 10. Yep, week 10. Um, this week coming up, 
obviously Michigan, Michigan State's always fun. Um, yeah. No matter no matter what those teams look like, um, Ohio State, Penn State had more juice, I would say, going into uh, it before this past week. I still think Penn State can can stay in that game. Um, I understand Ohio State won big over Nebraska. Um, I still didn't think they were overly impressive. No, no, no. Yeah. No, I, I, I completely agree with you there. And look, yeah. it's nothing to sound the alarm, right? Because it's, it's week one on a weird season. But, hey, that, that was a real thing. Yep. And then uh, Notre Dame against Georgia Tech. That's one of the games I'm watching for uh, a little bit of an upset alert. Um, I understand Georgia Tech hasn't been playing that great, and Notre Dame's looked decent. Um, but Notre Dame's offense is scaring me a little bit. They're not putting enough on the board. They are dominating games defensively and, and uh, keeping games in their hands. They're controlling the games. Georgia Tech's a team that has the opportunity in past years to put points on the board very quickly. Um, if they get off to a hot start in that game, I'm not too sure Notre Dame can overcome it offensively. I know um, Notre Dame has had some games this year where they've scored a little more, but on the whole, you look at that game two weeks ago, I believe, against Louisville when they won it at the end. And they win it at the end, but they, 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 they had a chance to win that game at the end, Louisville. So I look at that kind of game, and Notre Dame just feels like a team for me. As much as I like their front, their front seven, they can be in a spot where they could be on upset alert a lot of weeks because they are playing in the ACC this week, this year. So every week for me, I'm kind of looking forward to Notre Dame, to be honest. Yeah, I agree. Now, I have a lot of the same. I think the Penn State-Ohio State game is still interesting because Penn State knows going into this game, that if they lose this game, they might as well go ahead and pack up the bags and go home, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's done. The season for them, as far as playoff aspirations, are done. And unfortunately for a team like Penn State, when you have a coach as brilliant as Franklin, that is the expectations, is playoffs, yeah. right? Because he's, he's just about there. I think the loss of Micah Parsons hurts, but – They'll be looking to respond against a good Ohio State team because a win there puts them right back in the driver's seat. Mm -hmm. I think one we talked about earlier, I'm surprised you didn't bring up, 17 Indiana versus Rutgers. I just, I just was looking down at my sheet and I processed that game and I was like, that's one where it could be a statement game for Rutgers. And it's one of those games where it's almost, I don't want to say everything to lose for Indiana because – but if they win that game, it's not like they're drastically moving up. They'll probably jump up one or two spots if that. If they you know, move. If they move. Because Rutgers, even though they win that game, Rutgers is still not who – I mean, but, yeah. but for them to be only 13-point dogs against an Indiana team that just beat Penn State, it does say something about how you feel about the Rutgers team with Shiano. I don't think – I don't see Rutgers winning that game, but I think it'll be a super close game and competitive. And that's all you can ask as a Rutgers fan when years past, they were consistently getting decimated by teams like Nebraska. You know what I mean? So it's, it's a start. I think they, they, they lose this one close, though. So I have two more games, right, okay. that I think are super important. One of them is super important to me, um, and that's Bama versus Mississippi State. Now, obviously, it's important to me because the Bama defense hasn't been doing very well. And 
the Mississippi State offense hasn't been doing very well. And I think this is a super important confidence booster game for that Bama defense. The Bama defense really responded in the second half against Georgia. They still weren't great, but they were much better than the weeks before. They weren't great against Tennessee, but aside from a few missed assignments, they played a very solid game against Tennessee. And I'm expecting some good stuff against the Mississippi State offense that has been terrible, right? I don't think that's a close game. I don't exactly think that that's one the viewers need to run home and watch. It'll be interesting to see how Sarkeesian tries to scheme without Waddle. But mainly that's the Bama defense to me. I'm interested in how can they use this as a confidence booster. Yeah, and it's of, – of course Bama shouldn't be worried about Mich- uh, Mississippi State. Um, but there's something about that Mississippi State team. They're terrible right now. But something about them – I feel Interestingly like there's some, terrible. The, yes, because there's something in that team that I feel like can pop off one week. I don't know what it is. I've, not against Bama. I don't think this game's even close. No. But with the rest of the SEC schedule, I feel like if they play a team that's, of course, not Bama, I feel like they could pop off out of nowhere. I feel like we saw them briefly when they beat um, LSU. I know LSU has been pretty, pretty terrible, but it's still a big win for them. And I think that's there somewhere. That offense has looked terrible over the last two weeks since then, or three weeks now since then, um, scoring two points against Ken. Kentucky, I think yeah, they scored yeah. two against. And then last week against Texas A&M, they didn't look very good. They looked better at the end of the game, but they didn't look good for the full game. So, again, Bama routes them. But like you said, it's it's a super um, important game for the Alabama defense to get on track and for Bama to kind of work out their kinks and figure out how to use that offense without Waddle. Yep. And the very last game before we close here I think is important – is unranked Texas versus ranked Oklahoma State. Because, look, I don't care what the rankings say, right? All I need to do is look at how you recruit and what your brand is. Mm. And based off of those two alone, Texas should beat Oklahoma State. Will they? Probably not, no. But they should. And I think – As much as, I don't know if you ever checked it out on my YouTube channel, I made a video about Tom Herman and it was, it's, it's, he's towing the line of, is he on the hot seat or not? I think COVID cooled the hot seat for him. I think him losing out on some commits reheated it, but then he gets the number one player in the class of 2022, Quinn Ewers, kid out of Texas, South Lake Carroll, looks like the next coming of just the greats at quarterback, super talented kid. But that hot seat continues to get hotter if he gets blown out by Oklahoma State this weekend. Yeah, I um, this Texas team's weird to me. Um, I think Sam Ellinger has the ability to keep any game close. I just think he has the second half first. He always comes out hot. Um, and as bad as Texas might be as a team – or as average, I should say, not bad, but average. Um, I think he has the ability to keep any game close. The fact that OK State, who is ranked sixth right now, is only giving three and a half points to an unranked Texas team tells you all you need to know about this game. Yeah. Um, If, I'm not saying I am, 
if I was a betting man, I would not be touching this game because it's it's just too scary. Because you, you could take that – because this game can go two different ways. It can go very close, and the game stays close, and, and both teams fight to the end, and you get that – you know, you take that three and a half and you cover it. Or it could be a blowout that never looks good because OK State can do that too. So – but I will say that, like you said, if OK State blows out Texas – it does make Herman's job look very dicey. I don't think yeah. he would get fired, but dicey. Yeah, I think it definitely puts him on coals. Yes. Right? Like, because uh, that is not a patient area. Yeah. Austin. And there is something to be said that, like, before Herman got there, I felt like for a couple of years there, and maybe, I mean, still in some positions, but Texas – I felt like didn't recruit as well as they could have for a couple of years there. And especially, especially at the uh, quarterback position, because it's been known how many guys come out of Texas. And now I'm talking about, I, I should have specified recruiting in state. I should have specified recruiting in state because how many good quarterbacks come out of Texas and they didn't get any of them for years and years. So, Herman definitely put them back a little bit with recruiting. He definitely well, I told you my Texas stat, right? Last time we talked? Maybe. I don't remember. Since 2006, the year after Vince Young was drafted, how many first-round draft picks do you think the University of Texas has put out? You definitely didn't tell me the stat, so I'm happy I'm going through this. Um, how many first-round picks? Yep. Since, since 2000. The draft six. after. Because 2006 was the Vince Young draft. They put out a lot of guys under the NFL that year. In every yeah. year, how many first-rounders do you think they have? It's not a lot. No. Um, I'm going to say four. Six. Six. How many of them do you think played offense? <laughs> Zero? None. Yeah, I was going to say. I would say so none. When you have this development issue, Right, it's understandable where quarterbacks aren't going, and I, I know that fact because Texas lost out on two commits this year that they shouldn't have lost out on, the Brockermeyer twins, right in Fort Worth, Texas, about thirty minutes down the road from me. These kids' grandfather played for the University of Texas. Their father played for the University of Texas. Oh, no. Both their grandfather and father were drafted to the NFL out the University of Texas. Where do you think their older brother plays right now? Texas. The University of Texas. This kid is the number five player in the nation. Tommy Brockermeyer, number one player in the state of Texas. His twin brother, James Brockermeyer, is the number one center in the nation. <laughs> they both commit to the University of Alabama because they said Texas doesn't have development and 11 of the last 13 tackles from Bama have been drafted. What are you going to say to that? Yeah. And, and even on that second – the second kid you talked about, the guy that was the center, Bama anywhere on that offensive line seems to get guys in the NFL. You look at the kid now, um, Landon Dickerson, he's, he's oh, on he's, his way too. I mean, he plays guard. He plays guard, No, right? he's, he, he went center this year. That's what I thought. He, he's he very switch. intelligent on that offensive line. He's great. Yeah, he's going to be – he's a guy that um, – I had mentioned earlier in the season when I saw him play, I was like, he'd be a perfect guy for the Jets in like a third, third round, second round. He may oh, he's going to be a great value pick. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's a chance he could jump up the board, uh, sort of like, um, oh, who was that guy a couple years ago? 
Ryan Kelly, Ryan yeah. Kelly, the center. Bama. He went, Bama and he was, he was looking at second, third round, and he jumped and then ended up going first round, I believe, to the Colts. So that kind of talent that can jump up that board. I love Landon Dickerson, but the point was any member of that offensive line Bama likes to put into the NFL and they could do it with ease. Well, you know, and this is kind of extending, but we'll close with it. You know, in the Bama recruiting class right now, have I told you about their offensive line class they have coming in? You may have mentioned last week, but definitely mention it again. So this year on their offensive line, they are working on grabbing arguably the greatest class for an offensive line in the history of college football. Jesus. I say that because I already told you that they have the number one offensive lineman in the nation, Tommy Brockermeyer. Okay, mm -hmm. his twin brother is the number one center in the nation. Tommy Brockermeyer is the number five player in the nation. Their next best recruit is the number six player in the nation. So they have the fifth and sixth best player in the nation. He is also a tackle. So they have the two best tackles in the nation, the best center in the nation, and they have the second best guard in the nation all in one recruiting class. Monster stuff. Hey. Yeah. yeah. That's monster stuff. It's it's incredible. Well, I think that'll be a good place to end it. We got a lot of college football to look forward to this week. A lot of sports stuff to talk about. I think next week we might try and do something similar because uh, we got to get into your Jets and my Vikings, man. Oh, man. It is – we got to have somebody to vent to, and at least we can understand each other in our pursuit of terrible <laughs> – this has been a blast, man. As always, always a really good time talking sports with you. Everybody listening, you got to check out his show. Um, it's a great podcast. The DSN is putting out a lot of good content right now, and it's only going to keep going. Nick, do you have anything you want to say that coming up? A couple things. Um, so we mentioned it on the baseball podcast last night. We recorded it. That'll come out today. Well, not today. This probably come. This will probably come out Thursday. Yeah. So it came out two days ago. So look, you can look for it. Um, we're talking about how the baseball next week is the uh, baseball where they announce the MVP, Cy Young, the award ceremony. We're going to do our own little um, show on Monday Night Live uh, where we kind of give our predictions on it and do a kind of whole award show behind it and put some stuff behind it. So that's going to be pretty fun. Um, and as always, on the Bump Podcast, that's the baseball podcast, comes out every Tuesday. Nick Barlotta show comes out every Wednesday and then make sure you listen to this podcast on Thursdays because, and then Fridays is to pick them. So you have Tuesday through Friday, you have a show every single day. Um, and we're working on adding a show for a Monday too. We want, we want one every day, multiple shows a day if we can, I don't care. Um, but yeah, things are definitely going well and uh, yeah, excited to be on here today. Yeah. And just kind of as a roadmap going forward, we, I talked about it earlier for this week, we're going to be doing a double upload. Wanted to have you on because I had just a great time talking with you on your podcast last week. Um, but also we have a former UNT football player, Brendan Witherspoon, is going to be joining us at my house. We're going to have a good time talking to him. Um, good friend of mine. He did a lot of legal stuff with me. Um, really smart guy, so I'm really looking forward to that. Been thinking a lot about things I'd like to do. I think, you know, looking way for forward, we're going to be streaming the draft mm. uh, get a bunch of guys together be doing that. We're going to do stuff like that for the playoff games where before the games start, we'll do like little live streams. And as yeah. the podcast grows, you know, more stuff will come out about that, but definitely uh, 
Y'all, if you aren't already, the DSN is going to be putting out a lot of content and something that Nick and I haven't even told you about that we've been talking about amongst each other is a sport debate show. Just all sports, all gloves off, nothing fabricated, all real. Um, so a lot of big stuff planned. Yeah, absolutely, man. I'm, I'm excited and uh, yeah, definitely look out for a lot of content. I want to start turning some of the videos that I produce um, I mean, some of the podcasts I produce, the Nick Barwada show, the On the Bump, um, and turn them into some, you know, video podcasts um, on YouTube and get those going and keep trying to push the product because it's definitely a very good product. And um, yeah. Yeah, man. It's, it's, it's really exciting stuff. Once again, everybody, Nick Barlotta has been with me today talking about the ineptitudes of the NCAA the ineptitudes of the Pac-12 outside of Oregon, and the sadness that is my Alabama Crimson Tide without Jalen Waddle. But other than that, man, great to have you on. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so uh, with the, what you just mentioned, 